0: Uh uh.
1: This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the vocals of Greg Allman, and we celebrate his life on this show for the hour. We love music, and few did it better than Greg, his brother Duane, who was taken from this earth prematurely. And this is one of the great bands, one of the great singers of all time. And Greg's founding role in the one and only Allman Brothers Band And his long and storied solo career, what we're going to spend the next hour on. And Allman was more than a singer, he was a heck of a writer. And he and his brother were fearless when it came to just playing the music they wanted to play. Part blues, part country, part jazz, they didn't care, they mixed it all together. He was the survivor of unimaginable loss, as you'll hear in this hour, alcohol and drug addiction as well as, well, a successful 2010 liver transplant. Allman accrued a remarkable list of honors over his five decades of work, including his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a 2012 Lifetime Achievement Award at the 54th Annual Grammy Awards, as well as his 2006 induction into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. Let's go back to the beginning. Young Greg Allman, well, he was born December 8th, 1947 in Nashville, Tennessee, a little more than a year after his older brother, Dwayne. When asked about his mom, Greg had this to say about her.
2: Well, to give you an idea of what she was like, uh, she was bored, so she bought her Harley Davidson. You know, Harley Davidson has out a, a, a small book that's called Women of Harley. And uh, she's in there in a bathing suit, you know, and combat boots. They interviewed her once and they asked her, they said, How do you feel about traveling around with your son? And she said, Well, actually, we see the a of every place and the front end of nothing because we always enter f- through the kitchen or, you know, the backstage area. <laughs> so uh, if you're getting a picture of her here, she's a, she was a feisty lady. And, uh, I mean, she lived to be 98 years old, died in her sleep. She's one of the good ones, I guess.
1: Mama had a Harley and wore a bikini on the Harley. Greg Allman's father was murdered by a lone hitchhiker when Greg was
2: very young. Here he tells the story of what happened on that fateful day. I was two and my brother was three, so I, I never knew him. I never knew the uh, feeling of having a father. He was with this friend of his, who was a who was a master sergeant, and uh, they were all in uniform and everything. And they went to this beer joint, you know, shot pool, had a few beers, you know. And uh, this guy was in there and uh, started shooting a little pool with them, and they. Just, you know, an old beer drinking, telling a bunch of lies, you know, (laughs) how that goes. And uh, it got late into the night and the guy asked him, uh, he said, you know, I live right right up the way here. Do you think you could give me a ride home? So they get about halfway down the dirt road and the guy pulls out a 45. Remember now the guy's name is Buddy Green. So they get out of the car, and he's standing there with a gun on them. And uh, and they just said, man, you know, take take anything you want. You know, just leave us with our lives. And uh, so my, my father's friend said, listen, buddy, we got no problem with you. Take the car, take everything. But he just said, listen, buddy. <laughs> and the guy says, well, now you know my name. I've got to kill you. And with that, the two of them took off across the field and he got my father, he missed Mr. the sergeant, but he got my father in the back. It was the day after Christmas too.
1: So Greg Allman's mom was now all alone raising two boys. Here, Allman describes what life was like.
2: She did a great job of being, you know, mother and father both. I mean, she took us fishing and you know, and then my uncles, his two brothers, stepped in and took care of the firecrackers and You know, slingshots, BB guns, things that a kid has got to have.
1: In the documentary about the legendary fame recording studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Greg Allman here talked about his brother Dwayne and how the Allman Brothers band
2: got started. My brother was a hell of a guy. He was uh, very intelligent. He did three things. He had his arm around a guitar, arm around a beautiful lady, or his head in a book. The only time we were partners was when he worked down in in Muscle Shoals. He played with Aretha and Wilson Pickett and Clarence Carter and uh, was just kicking mucho butt on the guitar. And uh, that's when the idea hit him man, we gotta put a band together. That's all there is to it. He called me on the phone and he said, Man, I got these four guys, I got two drummers, and I'm going, Train wreck. Two full sets of drums? He says, Yeah, but you just you gotta hear it. You gotta hear it. I says, God, I can almost hear it from here, yeah.
1: <laughs> and he's laughing because the younger brother's not quite catching the older brother's vision. And by the way, Dwayne was like a father to young Greg. And when we come back, more on the life of Greg Alman, we take you out from the Fillmore East record that put this band on the map. A live performance. The best way to understand the Almond Brothers, seeing them live. our American stories, we continue with our celebration of Greg Allman's life and just listen to those two brothers go one filling on the slide and steel and Dwayne Allman well no one played a guitar like him and no one sang like Greg and what an unlikely thing to happen in this universe the two brothers could make this kind of music together and then it happened on October 29 1971 The great Dwayne Allman was riding his Harley Davidson in Macon, Georgia, when he rear-ended a flatbed truck. His motorcycle landed on top of him and skidded another 90 feet with him pinned underneath it, crushing his internal organs. He was alive when he was brought to a hospital, but despite immediate surgery, he died several hours later from massive internal injuries. At this point, Greg Allman had a choice to make, to give up, or to keep going.
2: The Almond Brothers had just uh, just come into its own. He was always the first to face the fire, you know. He was a very he was a born leader. He really was, and uh, that's made it even harder to pick up and keep going after he after he passed away. And then and then Oakley, on on top of that, the bass player. Everybody kind of got in this room together and. You know, what, what are we going to do now? And I said, if we don't keep playing, we're liable to wind up on the street, you know. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But, you know, we're never going to find anybody as, as compatible as we all still are, As what's left of us. I know that it had, I, I told him if if it had been me instead of him, I know I would have wanted you all to keep going and keep trying to attain, you know, what, what we're shooting for here. Sure enough, everybody hung on, and just it, it, it felt at times like it gave us more incentive to, to work even harder. Greg
1: Olman spent a majority of his life on the road and on stage. The band, they did move ahead, and they did some of their greatest work. And I think, in large measure, these deaths fueled it. They honored the deaths, in fact. And it might come as a shock to hear that with all those years on the road and all these performances, and I mean, these guys would play the beacon for a month in New York City and sell it out. A month. Well, he had stage fright before every performance up until his dying day.
2: I still do. Stage fright has been... uh, I think a lot of entertainers have it. They just won't admit it, you know? But... uh, you know, when you walk out there on stage, the energy from the people hits you. And uh, at first, it's it's scary. It's a strange thing going out on stage because I've, been, uh, I've walked out on stage before with an abscessed tooth. And as soon as you get out there, it goes away. You walk off stage; it comes back. I've been out there with a sciatic nerve thing in my back, and it's it's just like the the land of no pain. I guess you're just so focused, you know, on what you're doing, you you forget about something like a pain. But uh, it's remarkable; it really is. The stage fright happens before all that. Right. After you get out there, you want, two, three, four. gone
1: (laughs) yep and so many great performers suffered from stage fright and allman didn't just suffer from this psychological uh, issue he had a liver transplant in 2010 he had cirrhosis of the liver hepatitis c and cancer at a time when he didn't know how to quit drinking or stop doing
2: drugs i went through a long period of my life of drinking I mean, serious drinking. I would have to drink, I mean, I was drinking about a quart of vodka every day of my life. And if I didn't, I would get the delirium tremors, the DTs, and I mean, you'd have bugs crawling all over you. and I mean, just stuff just out of this world. I mean, just from withdrawing from alcohol. I mean, it's, it's some diabolical stuff to some people. I just, I didn't know how to stop. I went to 14 rehabs, but I didn't go to 15.
1: And by the way, we find this in so many of the artists, this suffering, this drugs, this bout, with, bouts with loneliness and depression. And they write about our pain because they're writing about their pain. And in the end, how many times have we heard this story before? here, Greg Allman talks about the moment when he realized that he needed serious help.
2: We got nominated and accepted and inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995. It was at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And uh, I promised myself, I mean, I even lined them up, little shot glasses in the hotel room. Okay, one each hour, you know, I didn't want to get... You know, shaky, but I didn't, by God, I did not want to get drunk. And uh, that's a hard thing to do. So I, uh, I needed my boots shined, so I took them downstairs. And here's all these old buddies of mine, and, you know, you pass like ships in the night. You just rarely see each other, but you're good old, old buddies. It was like old home. We, oh, come on, man, come to the bar, let me buy you one. No, I'll just have one. Well, long story short, I'm standing there getting ready to walk up on the stage, Rocky and Willie Wilson's Nelson is presenting us Allman with the award. And I'm just, I can barely stand. And I thought, man,
0: Thank you, folks. what is
2: wrong with you? In honor of the
0: greatest friend, brother, guitar player, and inspiration I've ever known, my brother Dwayne was always the first to face the fire. He was my
2: greatest motivation. Thank you. I wanted to say all these things about Bill Graham. I wanted to say things about my mother. You know, I wanted to say all these different people. You know, and I just got up there, and I was afraid I was gonna fall down. And Willie even said to me, he says, man, are you all right? I said, Willie, I'm not all right. I'm not. And uh, so I just said, this is for my brother, and walked off stage. Well, as luck would have it, I saw a film of it about two, three days later. And I just, I was I was appalled at myself. I was just, I sat there and just cried like a baby, and, And prayed to God, you know, give me the strength to get away from that and live the rest of my life in peace.
1: And so it was. And listen to that voice. So direct, so stark, so straight. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more. But We're going to play a lot of his music and we're going to bump out here with one of his original compositions that wasn't with the Allman Brothers Band. Let's take a listen. the life of Greg Allman celebrated here on our american stories you're listening to come and go blues more music more conversation more of greg allman's words after these messages you,
0: know you got me feeling like i
1: And you're listening to Greg Allman, Full and we're celebrating his life for the hour here on Our American Stories, and we love music here, and we know you do too, and we love talking about every kind of music. Heck, we did the life of Vladimir Horowitz, we've done Miles Davis, we've done Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, Billy Joel. We don't discriminate. Great music is great music. Here's Greg Allman talking about the first time he held a guitar as a child and what music has meant to him.
2: I remember the first time I ever picked up and held a guitar. And something went off in my brain, and I just was totally just into a trance with this thing. I mean, my mother was worried about me, me and my brother both. We didn't eat, we didn't sleep, we didn't go out with girls. While we just play them damn guitars. And she's like, guys, you know, this is a sickness with y'all. Many times she'd come in, we'd both be in our beds with a guitar on, right? Because <laughs> we'd fall asleep playing it. And I don't think I ever really wished for fame. I just, music just does it for me. It just really does.
1: Greg Allman's brother, Dwayne, wanted to start a band, but trying to gain any popularity with listeners was a hard thing to do at the time. Here's Greg.
2: All right, in 63 and a half, the Beatles came out, or they hit America. All right, that kind of changed everything, because, no pun, but everybody and their brother... Had a damn band, and I mean, there was some competition out there. And my brother was just from the first. He said, "Man, this is it. This is what we're gonna do the rest of our lives." I said, "We, we hold it." And I said, "You know, we got a pretty damn good band, but I mean, you know, uh, there's bands within this state that are better than us." You know? He said, "What do you mean?" He said, "We, get, we just get better every day. You know, we're gonna be the best." And he said, "You just you you need to go ahead and quit quit this high school crap and come on with me." And I said, nah, "No can do." I said, "You know I've heard since day one that if you don't have at least high school education, you know." I said, "What if this don't work out?" You know. He said, "What do you mean? What if it don't work? It's gonna work out." I said, "Man, you gotta." A lot of confidence, a lot more than I do, you know. And so this went back and forth for, I mean, months. And and, uh, we got the band together. There's four of us, right? And uh, they're waiting on me to get out of high school.
1: So the brothers got the band going, but it was far from easy work. Greg didn't know if it would last and aspired to be, of all things, a
2: dentist. I remember it was July 5th. 1965, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we had a big party, and my mother had bought us this uh, really nice uh, Chevy station wagon, right? And we had this trailer. We carried all this stuff. We got the whole band and everything in it, you know. And uh, we were off to seek our fortune. It was rough. I told him, I'll give you two years, and at the end of that two years, we haven't had some measured... Success at this, I'm going on back to dental school. And uh, at the end of that two years, I was so far in debt. I mean, we're trying to buy amplifiers and all this other equipment and stuff. I was, you know, I mean, we were making, we played six nights a week, five sets a night, 45 minutes a set, for, I made $111 a week. This is 1965 now. But he's still, you can't make ends meet.
1: Before the Allman Brothers officially became a band, Greg was already becoming frustrated with the music he was playing. At just 17 years old, he wrote a song that would become one of his signature songs.
2: I was tired of playing other people's songs. I was sick to death of that, because if you didn't play just so many top 40 songs and so many Beatles songs, then, you know... Club owner didn't want you. So my brother said, Well, hey, you don't like them songs? Write your own. Well, the first one I wrote was called Melissa. I was 17 years old when I wrote Melissa. Fact is, I didn't really think it was that much of a tune. Of course, then I didn't have the title. And the title was like the whole thing. And the title was, was, the song was about, I was out there on the road. I was just basically lonely, so I invented this woman. So I wrote the whole song, except for the title. What was her name? Had to be three syllables. But back home, we'll always run with sweet Barbara. No, that ain't it. With sweet Diane, <laughs> Brenda. Shh. I just put it down for a while. So it had been like two, three weeks after I had what I had, but it just kind of put it aside. It came my turn to go to the grocery store and get coffee and sugar and what have you, that staple stuff, you know. So I went in there, and uh, there was the manager who was up in his little nest, and uh, the checkout lady. And then there was one patron, you know, one person shopping. She had this little toddler with her. Must have been her granddaughter or something. And the kid was just old enough to realize she had legs that worked. And so she was up and down there, running, you know. And uh, she kept grabbing her, trying to hold on to her and all that. So i what have you. And so the kid obviously ran out of the lady's sight and she yells out,
0: Oh, Melissa, Melissa, where are you? I
2: Melissa. Ah, I could have gone over there and kissed her.
1: And when we come back, we're going to play that song in its entirety and give you a context of how that song came to be. We're celebrating the life, the life of Greg Allman. Here on our American stories. And this is one he recorded outside the Allman Brothers band. More on the life of Greg Allman after these messages. Our American Stories, and we left off with Greg Allman talking about a song, Melissa. Again, he'd written it when he was 17, and we had talked earlier about the tragic ending of his brother's life and what the band was going to do, and they decided there was only one thing to do, and that was go on. And one of the first songs that band recorded, the Allman Brothers Band without Dwayne, well, it was Melissa. At Dwayne Allman's funeral in 1971, Greg Allman played this song on one of Dwayne's old guitars. At the service, Greg said, quote, This was my brother's favorite song that I ever wrote. have to play that song in its entirety and what a band and we would have loved to have heard what his brother would have done with the phrasing but my goodness I don't know how you improve on what you just listened to spectacular when asked about his songwriting process Greg explains that while some songs come in bits and pieces others hit him like a ton of bricks
2: there's as many ways to write songs as there is songs And it'll hit you at the most inopportune time. Uh, I mean, like when you're so tired that you're... Technically, you're asleep before your head hits the pillow. Uh, Bam, it'll hit you. And some, most songs, like 99.5% of them hit you in little pieces. You get little pieces of it. And you got to dig for the rest. But every now and then, one I'm going to hit you just like a ton of bricks, the whole thing, the whole thing. Midnight Rider was one like that. And it, uh, less than 45 minutes, it was done. It felt as if I had nothing to do with it.
1: Midnight Rider was the second single from the Allman Brothers' second studio album, Idlewood South, released in 1970. It was written in a rented cabin outside of Macon, Georgia. Once asked what music should be played at his memorial service after he dies. Without hesitation, he calls out the name
2: of the biggest musical influence in his life. Muddy Waters. I was just crazy. And I was fortunate enough to have sat on the same stage with the man twice. The thing about those old blues cats that that I admire so much. Is they were just so simple, but the parts just meshed together, just because nobody overplayed, nobody had a rack of amps that big, you know. It was nothing. There's nothing British about it. <laughs> Muddy Waters, as simple as
1: simple can be. Jesse and I also uh, share a passion for music together, and we talk often about guys who overplay, showing off. Technique over substance and style over substance. And nobody had more substance and more simplicity than Muddy. Straight as an arrow. And there you have it, the life of Greg Allman, celebrated here on our American Stories. His story, his words were going out with a cover, and he didn't do a lot of them, but we thought it was appropriate. Will the circle go unbroken? mão The of Greg Allman celebrated here, his story here on Our American Stories.
0: That you are holding, oh I see her go, tell me will the story
1: This is our American Stories, and every once in a while it's important to dig down deep and bring you the stories that affect your lives, the kind of stories that matter to you the most. In this groundbreaking journalistic endeavor you're about to hear, our executive producer Jesse Edwards will shake America to its foundation with his profound and timeless retrospection into the time and lives of the internet of things and the internet favorite Talking Cats.
3: Test one, two. (sighs) Testing one, two. Every once in a while, we like to treat ourselves to the nonsensical musings of the common domestic house cat. Like this little guy, for example. We think he has rabies. You probably don't want to touch or go near a cat that sounds like this. But kids love talking cats. Like this little guy. He sure doesn't like to be pet. Our cat's fun. What lovely house pets. Like this little psycho. He's screaming the word no because he doesn't want to take a bath. Pure nightmare fuel. And this is perhaps the world's most famous talking cat. He's known as the O'Long Johnson cat. Let's listen to what he's
4: saying. Oh,
3: my dog. Oh, my
4: dog. oh
3: long John. Oh, long Johnson.
4: Oh, long Johnson.
3: Oh Don Piano. Oh,
4: don't.
3: Why I eyes you
0: oh,
4: all
3: the live long day. And last but not least, there's this creepy little guy known as the ISIS terrorist cat from deep in the heart of Syria. And this has been Talking Cats on our American stories.
1: And thank you for that report, Jesse. That's very good. Very serious. (laughs) By the way, we love shifting moods and themes and from that serious report to an even more serious report. The man who's been delivering us inspiring fortunes that come from the inside of fortune cookies is nearly... Out of ideas. For 30 years, Donald Lau has served as chief fortune writer at Wonton Foods, which builds itself as the largest manufacturer of fortune cookies, noodles, and other Chinese staples in the world. Now, he's stepping down. Why? He's got writer's block. But not all hope is lost. When Donald Lau bought the Wonton Food Factory in the 1980s, He started writing fortunes to go inside the fortune cookies. And now, decades later, he's passing the baton to his son, James Wong. Here's Donald and his son, James, talking about this peaceful exchange of power.
5: When we bought the factory uh, back in the mid-80s, we decided to update the fortunes. And since my English was uh, the best among the group, uh, I was given the job. I guess I got the job by default. Writing fortunes was never uh, part of my career projection. I'm Don Lau. I've been with uh, Wonton Food for more than 30 years now. My dad was with the company.
6: Uh, He's now retired, so I would come around to the factories when I was at a very young age. That's how I got to know the business, basically just spending time there. My name is James Wong. uh, role. I have many. I'm in charge of overseeing IT, purchasing, and of course,
5: fortune writing. Well, in the old days, uh, all the fortunes were um, the horoscope type uh, fortunes. Uh, uh, you will do this and this, you will meet uh, that person, uh, you will find love, uh, uh, things like that. But over time, we introduced some Chinese philosophy and uh, humor into the uh, fortune cookies.
6: This role is kind of coming more prominent for me because Donald is saying that he should hand it off.
5: Well, I'm getting uh, a writer's block more often, so that's why James is, uh, will be helping out and uh, he'll be taking over the responsibility. Me
6: and Donald always joke around with the fortunes that it, that's in his head that he's thinking about. Uh, eventually, I kind of fell into the role. Fortune writing is the the. The most fun of all the jobs that I can think of in a company, and usually the inspiration would come from people around me. And also, there's definitely some type of philosophy that you need to keep in mind. Fortune cookies reaches everyone. A lot of times, I think about my daughter uh, and what kind of advice that I would give her. 失败是成功之母. Failure is the mother to success. There are legal concerns whether we might risk a chance of getting sued and it was apparently read by someone that is having trouble with the marriage. The husband is about to go off on a business trip. He was in a Chinese restaurant with his wife and got his fortune cookie. The message read, a romance is in the air in your next trip. The wife got very upset and decided that it's our fault. There is a risk with anything that we write, but we still need to keep a positive attitude about it. There's a sense of seriousness in the office, and uh, fortune writing is definitely the outlet for our sense of humor.
5: My daughter uh, became a doctor, and I asked her, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, I want to make people feel better. So I came up with a fortune that says, want to make people feel better? Forget med school, go into comedy instead. Your fortune, it's complicated. I came up with one which will not be in the uh, fortune. Don't run for president. You're not a good liar. And another one, uh, you know that most fortune cookies are eaten in Chinese restaurants. You are what you eat, but you still don't look Chinese. (laughs) Come more often. You will soon become such a VIP that the NSA will listen to your phone calls.
6: We try to be humorous keep things a little lighthearted. And this is Lee
1: Habib, talking cats, fortune cookie writers, and by the way, Wanton Food makes a staggering 4.5 million cookies each day in their Queens, New York factory. Great job on this, Jesse, as always. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American story.
3: I could escape this feeling
4: with my
1: Our American Stories, and every once in a while, we poke in on some part of the media and share it with you. By the way, we love Shark Tank. You hear regular segments from Shark Tanks. They're great stories, people pitching their products, pitching their lives to high net worth people and fantastic businessmen who may or may not invest in those enterprises for a stake of the business. Terrific show. We love Judge Judy. And sometimes we bring you an episode of Judge Judy. You have busy lives, and so we do it for you. And This Is Life with Lisa Ling wrapped up their third season. It's on CNN. They wrapped up their third season of programming, where the award-winning journalist goes on what CNN calls a, quote, gritty, breathtaking journey to the far corners of America. If you listen to our This Is Life with Lisa Ling segments, you heard Ling's reporting where she managed to sympathize with, literally, the devil during her Satanist Next Door episode, and then with a notorious outlaw outlaw motorcycle gang, the Mongols. But then she had an outstanding fatherless towns episode where she documents a special dance for daughters and their fathers who are incarcerated. The dance is held by the prison to help develop daddy-daughter relationships. Today, we are happily featuring another great episode called silicon savants here's host lisa ling giving us a quick look into this week's episode
7: this is jackson
8: i don't have like any clean shirts and i'm pissed about it
7: he's 19 years old and lives in this tiny room with simon who's 21
8: we woke up to tons of bugs that people had found i'll fix it
7: and stefan also 21 Today is a big day for them. They hope to raise one million dollars. Around here, that's not so far-fetched. So I'm coding right now. Yeah, you are. Oh, okay. Abe is 19 and he already created a million dollar company. It's
9: the new gold rush.
7: Silicon Valley is teeming with investor money. Brilliant young people from all over the country are flocking here. Hoping to become the next Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. Do you have any regrets about not even having a high school diploma? None, no. These young savants are charting the future. So can we just see you control this car with your mind? Whoa, whoa. And
8: changing the world. (laughs) What happened in San Francisco in 2015 is going to be the subject of history books.
1: Let's follow Lisa through the San Francisco Bay Area of Berkeley and Silicon Valley, California and find out what America's young and brilliant minds are up to these days.
7: If you're wondering what college students are up to these days, you don't have to look much further than a football stadium on an October weekend. It's 8 p.m. on a Friday night and hundreds and hundreds of kids have converged here on the campus of UC Berkeley for a huge event. But don't be fooled these kids aren't here to tailgate and watch the game. They're here to hack. Hi, everyone.
4: How many of you are beginner hackers? This is your first hackathon.
7: Whoa, hell yeah! This is the CalHacks Hackathon. More than 2,000 collegiates from all across the country will spend the next 36 hours inside this football stadium, racing to engineer cutting-edge computer-based projects from scratch.
4: i just love to give a huge shout-out to all our corporate sponsors who made this hackathon possible. And with that, James Whitaker from Microsoft.
3: Thank you. Don't clap until you
0: hear what I have to say, because I have bad news for you all. For every smart person standing here listening to this right now, there's a 100,000 other smart people who are just as good as you. What's going to make you stand
3: out? That is creativity.
0: And now I'm getting
10: warm. (laughs) Software is the opposable thumb for the human mind. Let's go back to
1: Lisa and learn more about this hackathon.
7: It quickly becomes clear to me that hackathons are gold mines for Silicon Valley recruiters.
5: So uh, we're Uber. If you build something sick and you show it to us, we give you a job.
7: Sponsor companies give participants access to their most up-to-date technologies. And hackers who choose to use them can win serious prizes.
3: The best API usage is a lunch with a VC. So if you're an entrepreneur, you want to win that.
7: A representative from Microsoft tells me they find more desirable talent here than among computer science grads. Is it possible that you could actually hire people from here? Most definitely. I'd say we've recruited quite a few folks from hackathons. A lot of what university students learn now is not necessarily something that companies are hiring for. So literally, you could learn something six months ago, and that's no longer fresh by the time that you graduate. The hackathon is really a way for uni- like, for kids to stay fresh. Because they're working on like new, next-generation technology. They're working on like emerging products. They're building the next robot.
1: Let's meet one of these hackers.
7: James flew here all the way from New Jersey. This will be his 22nd hackathon.
10: Yeah, I can't find him.
7: If they let him through the door.
10: What university do you have like? Uh, I'm from a high school. Huh? You're yeah, from no, a high school. school student? We were told it's like no high school students allowed. Do you
7: mind waiting at the sign
10: right there? Yeah, of course.
7: At 17 years old, James is the quintessential overachiever. Eagle Scout, honor student, varsity debate team, model Congress. Yeah, it happens all the time. No, it's, no they, uh, they couldn't find my registration, but the same thing happened last year, so... right here! He's already won prizes at two hackathons. And even though he's still too young to vote, he did software development for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. What's
10: your name? James. Uh, James, come um, over here. Sure.
7: Fortunately, James's trip to California wasn't for nothing.
10: The, this is the only touch, um, okay? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to be a high school student uh, next year. Else, yeah. All right, thanks so much.
7: He's in. When James first discovered hackathons, he found a world full of people like himself. How's it going? Is this table being used? This area?
10: No? All right, thanks so much. The stereotype is we stay at home and we sit in our basements and drink uh, soda and eat pizza. Sorry, James. Nice to meet you. You know, that whole mentality changes when you come to an event like this. The chance that you're going to become friends with people here is extremely high.
7: Put in a book on the seat. Between events, James keeps in touch with the hackathon community online. That's how he found two teammates for this weekend's event.
10: You know, that's the great thing about hackathons is you never tend to work with the same team. I have met so many great people from all over the United States, people that I do think will be the next Mark Zuckerberg and the next, you know, Bill Gates. You get to meet all those people here and now.
1: Let's find out what James and his two teammates are going to create at the
7: hackathon. It's now 11 p.m. and the hackers are getting down to business.
10: We want to be able to vote from this.
7: After a few hours, I check in with James and his teammates to see how it's going. So do you know what you're making yet?
10: We've taken a look at how people use uh, mobile phones in African countries, Middle East. And our idea is, what if we can use text messaging for submitting votes for elections in those countries?
7: I mean, that's an incredibly ambitious project that you're trying to achieve. When I was your age, I was partying and (laughs) going to raves and all that. Is this fun?
10: There is nothing like it.
7: Hackathons are kind of like a party for me in that you get so much out of it and you have so much fun. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Can I catch up with you guys tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, of course.
1: Let's leave Berkeley and take a quick drive over to Silicon Valley and meet two guys preparing to pitch their startup to a room full of wealthy venture capitalists. Let's listen in as Jackson tells his barber about himself and his startup called Wealthcoin which ties into the online currency called Bitcoin.
0: So you from the area, Jackson, or?
8: Actually from Oklahoma City originally. I moved out here about a year and a half ago though. I'm a designer, co-found a startup with that guy. So what kind of startup do you guys have there? Uh... You ever heard of Bitcoin before? No, I haven't. It's just like crazy online currency. What makes it cool is that no one owns it. It's like decentralized which means there's no like government or bank that kind of backs it in. so our startup lets anyone invest in like stocks and bonds and portfolios with bitcoin that's pretty cool a uniformed uh, currency throughout the world there exactly it's like it brings out like the happy anarchist in everyone you know yeah. <laughs> just the right amount we let people make more money it's dope
1: we let people make more money it's dope jackson said These days in the Bay Area, startup companies are a dime a dozen. In 2014, U.S. venture capitalists spent $48.3 billion investing in these innovative technology startups. They're pouring record-breaking sums into startups hoping to strike gold by backing the next Facebook, Snapchat, or Uber. When we come back, more with Lisa Ling. This is life. Silicon Savants. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. Periodically, we take a dip into what's happening on TV, in the culture. And Lisa Ling's This Is Life on CNN is one of the more interesting shows out there. And it's on at odd times, so we track it so you don't have to. More on Silicon Savants, Silicon Valley, and young people who it looks like may never go to college. More after these messages. Our American stories, and we continue with this modern-day San Francisco Gold Rush, Silicon Savants. It's a story Lisa Ling told on "This Is Life" on CNN, and I think uh, the next hackathon I want to send one of our one of our team members out there because I think what's missing here is just the sense of play. Lisa's treating this like a straight reporting story, and my goodness, these kids are a blast, and they're just doing wild things were lives you know there was a day folks and we talk about this a lot on this show when people didn't go to college to do great engineering and innovative feats you know thomas edison wasn't going to college alexander graham bell they were inventing they were tinkering the guys who got us to air to space to flight they were the wright brothers they were bicycle shop owners and they were tinkerers on the side And now everybody's studying and everybody's getting advanced degrees and certifications. As we heard heard from a Microsoft executive, we don't want to hire from the colleges because they're not doing, those kids aren't doing the coolest, newest stuff. It's these kids who are just going to the hackathon. Well, that's a recruiting source for us. So back to the story. Here's Lisa Ling talking about this gold rush and Jackson's attempt to hit pay dirt with his two college dropout team members. Again, here's Lisa Ling.
7: Jackson's team has already secured $375,000 in commitments from venture capitalists. Their goal is to raise a million to launch their startup. But for now, they're sharing a 15-by-20-foot room that reminds me a lot of a college dorm. Wow, this space is tiny. (laughs) It's cozy. So who gets the mattress?
8: Uh, We had like a long conversation it got deep and then I got shafted with a mattress.
1: (laughs) Shafted with a mattress. Where do these young folks come from? Here's Jackson telling us about his childhood. We will also be hearing a home video interview of him as a 13-year-old.
7: You're only 19 years old, so technically you still are a kid, but what were you like when you were a little kid? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
8: I really didn't think the same way as other kids and I have always kind of had my own version of reality How old are
4: you? I'm 13
2: You're 13 and when did you get started with like blogging and stuff?
8: I guess November of last year I started the blog and then I started my podcast in March.
2: Did you know anything about development or design or
8: I do freelance graphic and web design and I've been doing that for about a year now when I was 12, I started a uh, video podcast, and I started uh, doing some freelance web design for local small businesses around Oklahoma City. And uh, that just kind of escalated to a-, a love for all things kind of tech and design related.
10: Wow. So you're going to start a business
4: now?
8: Oh, yeah. I have a business. Are you making money? Yes. Yes. What kind of student were you? Uh, terrible. I failed almost all of my classes. What? Yeah. Why is that? I, I wouldn't do homework is what it was. I would leave school, I would go home, and I would work on freelance web design for clients. How did your parents feel about this? Uh, it was terrible for the longest time. I mean, what, what are you gonna do when your kid's like failing out of school basically? Consistently every year. My college counselor called my mom and dad in together, and she said, you know, I think your son is on drugs.
7: <laughs> Jackson's mom gave him a choice, school or work but not both. But
8: When I was actually faced with the opportunity, hey, choose one, but just focus on one thing, then I immediately took a step back and said, wow, I could be doing this all the time. So after that, I dropped out.
7: And do you have any regrets about not even having a high school diploma? Not even, no. Our current high
8: school system isn't set up in a way that encourages students to succeed. It's set up in a way that encourages students to all meet the same standards. What you're saying is very controversial, you know that. I understand that, but it's something that everyone's going to realize sooner or later.
1: By the way, there's Lisa Ling editorializing, I think half of America thinks what this young man is saying is not controversial at all, and that schools breed and teach conformity, and we're pretty much put together for the 20th century industrial era, and it's making very little sense as it relates to the 21st century information age. Let's head back to the hackathon, though, and see how things are going with the Eagle Scout high schooler, James, and his team, who are attempting to create a program for third world nations that will allow citizens to vote from their phones.
7: So it's 11.30 p.m. Saturday night. How's everything going? We're making pretty good progress.
10: We're trying to get authentication working so that we can make sure that, you know, one person equals one vote, they don't submit votes on multiple phones.
7: I noticed you lost a partner here. Yes. <laughs> the yeah. is gone. Is uh, he, is he left, sleeping? lost
10: him to the horrors of being awake for 30 hours straight, but he's, he's asleep somewhere.
7: The last time I was here, it was 2 a.m. Uh, <laughs> 2 a.m. this morning. morning. So did you sleep then since we saw you last
10: So I went to sleep shortly after that.
7: I took a nap for 30 minutes this afternoon at some point. You've only slept 30 minutes? Yeah. No, come on. Yeah, I slept in the stairwell. Oh, my God, (laughs) Paula. It was fine.
10: I generally don't sleep during hackathons.
1: And this is the thing, folks. Millennials are oftentimes seen as lazy and entitled. Which, to a degree, can be true, but never ever label any generation because, well, generations have been doing that to the one that follows them forever. But what is also true is that what is often labeled as lazy is just plain boredom. One of the alternatives to the traditional college education is a controversial new learning institution in downtown San Francisco.
7: This is Make School, a radical alternative to college. It's a two-year program with 33 students, and they are really, really smart. In fact, some of the students here have turned down places like MIT and Harvard to be here. So who in Silicon Valley would create an institution like this? A 23-year-old college dropout, of course.
10: We're taking students who have already discovered they're, they're very passionate about building apps, and we are giving them a shortened, focused, University experience that'll let them pursue a career as a software developer or a
6: startup founder.
7: Ashu Desai co founded Make School. The program differs from traditional school in one major way it's a startup itself funded by venture capitalists, and they only invest because they hope to see a return. How does Make School work? Do students pay tuition?
10: Students won't pay upfront tuition. They'll pay tuition through their earnings by aligning our incentives directly with students. We're only making money if the students are having good outcomes. That's
1: brilliant. It's like how it's like Hollywood actors and athletes. They have agents, and then the agent, well, they invest in the athlete, they invest in the artist, they get them coaches, and if that all works out, they get ten percent. This is brilliant. Let's meet a Make School student. 19-year-old Ebenezer. Here's his background. So I grew up
9: in a little village in Ethiopia. My mom had the only radio. So when I was born, my mom let me take apart the radio. And as I grew up, I took apart the TV. Um, So anything I could get my hands on. So it was always interesting to me how things worked.
7: Ebenezer's family moved to the States when he was 10. And he discovered computers.
9: My dad told me to get a job the summer of eighth grade, so I went to the library, grabbed a few books on programming and thought, I could make a living off this. And I did some gigs for my neighbor, made some websites, made my first hundred dollars off that. And that first hundred dollars has, you know, gotten me here.
7: At age 14, Ebenezer launched his first startup. Before long, he had 15 employees and was pulling in serious profits. Can I ask about how much money you were making while you were in high school?
9: My company was worth almost a million dollars. Before you sold it? Yeah.
1: And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Silicon Savants. Lisa Ling's This Is Life. We cover these kinds of stories because we know you miss them. We don't. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our final segment of Lisa Ling's Silicon Savants. A fascinating hour on CNN. I wish it had been just a little lighter. These kids are terrific. And they're pushing boundaries, pushing an envelope. that I think a lot of parents are wondering about, frankly, and that is that in this digital age, when things are moving so fast, our kids are just really bored in school, more bored than ever before. Hey, look, when we were in school, there wasn't Facebook. There wasn't this speed. When we came home, there wasn't this speed of technology. So things moved and plodded along, and so did our lives. It was, I think, an easier time to not be bored. But today, all the more reason to maybe think about or rethink how we do schools, how we do everything. In the last segment, we had heard from a Make School student, 19-year-old Ebenezer, And by the way, his background, it was just fascinating listening to this young man. Why did this incredibly intelligent young guy bypass college in favor of this place called Make School?
7: After high school, Ebenezer planned to study computer science and business at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Thank you. But then he discovered Make School, and his plans changed overnight. Was there always an expectation that you would go to university?
9: Of course. My parents and all my friends thought, hey, this guy's crazy. But I think the times are changing. We're in the digital era right now, and that's not going to change. It's only going to get bigger and bigger.
1: It's so true, and make school is a bottom-up, and so much education is top-down. You know, I was just reading Lincoln's Greatest Case. It's about Abraham Lincoln's great case. He was representing the railroads against the steamboat industry. And it turns out I'm I'm reading through the book, and it turns out Lincoln never went to law school. Back then you didn't need somebody to certify that you were a qualified lawyer or not through a collegiate or accreditation process. He apprenticed for years, he took the bar, and he became one of the greatest lawyers in the history of America. That's how he used to do things. No nope, no law school debt, no three years guys with patches on their sleeves telling you how to think about. Well, this issue or that issue as it relates to the Constitution, go work in a law office, work for a while, then take a bar, then open up your own firm or go work for another firm. And I think that's what you're hearing from someone like Ebenezer. He's looking at New Jersey Institute of Technology. It's a private school. It's probably $50,000 a year. He's being taught by people who haven't been in the field for 20 years. And he's thinking, what am I paying for? Why am I going into debt? And incomes make school, and they say, hey, it's free, and if it works out for you, we want 5%. Oh, my goodness, they're going to be paying 10 or 15% to pay off their darn college loans. This is fascinating stuff, and Lisa Ling, I believe, and Greg, we'll talk about this at the end, I think she stumbled on something. I don't think she was looking for this, and actually it sounds like she's a little surprised and possibly upset at these new makeshift ways of thinking about school. In just two weeks since... Starting Make School, Ebenezer has made huge strides in developing a phone app. But are these new learning institutions more useful than a college education? Lisa Ling poses that question to the founder of Make School, Ashu Duse. Ashu says that college curriculums focus too much on theory, without giving the students the practical skills they need to succeed outside academia.
10: The trend that you can really watch is the collegiate hackathon scene where you'll have 1,000 students giving up their weekends, giving up their sleep because they want to learn about new technologies. It feels very broken that they have to do this on the weekend. For us at May School, we're saying, hey, here's two years of a hackathon, build cool things.
1: The time has come for Jackson and his team to pitch their Wealthcoin app idea to some 300 plus of the world's wealthiest venture capitalists. Twenty. Other startups will also be there to pitch their company. Lisa Ling has a question for one of the wealthy investors, Pierre Wolf.
7: Do you have concerns about you know, investing such huge amounts of capital in someone, well, in, in people who've had little experience? Hey, look, were we nervous about investing in Mark Zuckerberg? No, that's the nature of what
9: we do here. The youth are the ones taking chances, and some of the big things are happening with them.
7: you got to bet on
9: them, because
1: you don't know who's that next spark who's just going to catch that fire. Listen to Lisa, like she's there. do you know what you're doing? And, and, and this is, it's a mindset. And, and meanwhile, Pierre Wolfe's going, calm down. Young minds have done remarkable things. They're not little snowflakes. You know, when we did, when we were looking at John Adams' life, and we're getting ready for John Adams' life, he was sent off at the age of 12 or 13 by his parents to go to Europe on a boat. And these weren't cruise liners, alone. Because that's how we used to treat young people. Not like snowflakes. You want to go to Europe? Here, go. Live. Grow up. Jackson and his team's Wealthcoin app pitch is a success. They net interest from the man who owns the largest Bitcoin mining farm in the United States. Now let's head back to the Berkeley hackathon and listen in as James, the high school Eagle Scout from New Jersey, receives a grilling... As he has his voting app judged.
3: So show me about your hack today.
10: Do you have a phone on you? Sure. You text this number, and it asks you to tell hello. Me. Hey, please enter your first name. It's going to present you with a list of the candidates that you can vote for. So I voted for an illegal candidate. I voted for three, and you had one through two, and you accepted my vote. I'm gonna try voting again. And see what happens. Yeah. So obviously there was no uh, vote for when you voted for number three. Okay. And uh, let's try and I'm gonna try voting a third time. Okay, so I voted for three, and then two, and then one, and it said thank you all the times. Yeah, no, this is you know still a work in progress. So how are you handling the external visibility of all of this? Do you think building a voting system based on Facebook is the right solution? If you look at the Bitcoin system. I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about votes. The main problem is buying votes, which is especially common in Central America. That's, that's how most of the voter fraud is done. So any other questions? That's it. All right, well, thanks so much. Good to see you, good job. I okay, got grilled. He really knew what he was talking about.
1: He sure did get grilled. And by the way, that's good. That's how you learn in the end. And the sooner you can drill this down to young people, the better, folks. We all know that. Here's Ling with one hackathon team whose hack impressed the judges, even Ling herself.
7: These kids are thinking big.
6: The problem that we're tackling is the European migrant crisis.
7: This app connects Syrian refugees to volunteers who can provide them with food, water, and housing. So you thought of this idea here at the hackathon, but what are you going to do with it after? Because this app could really help people. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, really, do you have any idea where you could take this?
8: Yeah, honestly, as college students, right, we have to worry about school and stuff. But but it's just kind of
7: crazy because this could actually be so useful right now. Yeah. You guys just created this in 36 hours, and then you're going to go back to school on Monday, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the life of a hackathon. (laughs) I can't believe that in just a couple of hours, these kids will go back to school and their amazing ideas will just disappear. Seriously? Have you felt this? It's really got me wondering, are they wasting creative potential? Would the world benefit more if these young people were developing projects instead of sitting in college classrooms? It's brilliant, guys.
1: And that's a good question. And I think it probably took Lisa Ling longer than most of us to turn around and come to that conclusion. We're going to end this hour with parting thoughts from Lisa
7: Ling. This generation of millennials has been called lazy and entitled, but the kids I met are anything but. They're really creating extraordinary things, and it makes me excited about the future. I also want to send my daughter to a coding class. I mean, she's only two, but why not start her early?
1: And why not? Why not? Greg, you watched this segment. Uh, talk a little about the, the, the young people in this hackathon. What did it look like? Where did it happen? And and what what was the mass turnout for something like this? And how often does this happen around the country? Well, it happens a lot. But I just want to talk really
8: quickly about what she just said about starting her kid at two. That is the public school mentality. It is, let me get my kid, let me push my kid into being smarter instead of just sitting back and let them be self starters themselves like that's what the guy said i hire people not who went to college but the the ones who just sat at home and were self motivated ling is still having the public school mentality of oh if i just throw them in it's this idea that if i don't get them in kindergarten early enough they're not going to get into the right college right right and that's what we're told and that's what we're tricked into and just saying instead, instead of just sitting back and saying when my kid has the spark then I'm going to come alongside them, instead of trying to make the spark happen, which is not going to happen. It's just going to make them hate learning.
1: Yeah, And hate you. Yeah. I mean, ultimately. And, and again, all these great inventors, and this is why we love doing Benjamin Franklin, and listening to Walter Isaacson, and we're going to do a great hour on Franklin, and reading his book. My goodness. The parents weren't saying, "Now, now, Benjamin, get that kite out there, and go discover electricity. It's just not how it happened. No. He was a curious guy about a lot of things, and if you can encourage curiosity in your kids, and then leave them alone right. it might go a long way and uh let's just keep looking out for lisa ling there's hope for her but in the end she's always that mindset of top down of how, how can we say it best the hierarchical structures and thinking this is best for our kids and by the way best for how we live our day-to-day lives uh is just uh she's a work in progress lisa and this is our american stories this is what we love to talk about folks And this hackathon, the next time we give a report from a hackathon, we're going to be at the hackathon. And we may even follow some of these young people's lives for a while. Because it's easy to do here on Our American Stories. It's a phone. It's a cell phone. No cameras necessary. And thanks for joining us as always. We appreciate you listening. Without you, there is no show. Without you, there is no Our American Stories. Send your stories. We'll put them on the air.